0: Hey, it's Brett. It is Memorial Day here in the United States. We're taking a vacation to spend time with our family, eat some hamburgers. So we're doing a rebroadcast here of episode number 496, What Plato's Republic Has to Say About Being a Man. It's an interview I did with Professor Jacob Howland back in 2019, one of our most popular episodes ever. Hope you enjoy it. We'll be back on Wednesday with a new episode. See you then. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Plato's Republic is a seminal treatise in Western political philosophy and thought. It hits on ideas we're still grappling with in our own time, including the nature of justice and what the ideal political system looks like. But my guest today argues that the Republic also has a lot to say about manliness, character development, and education in our current climate of safe spaces and trigger warnings. His name is Jacob Howland. He's a professor of philosophy at the University of Tulsa and the author of the recent book Glaucon's Fate, History, Myth, and Character in Plato's Republic. We begin our conversation with an outline of Plato's Republic and how it combines literature and philosophy. Jacob then makes the case that in the Republic, Socrates was attempting to save the soul of Plato's politically ambitious brother Glaucon, and why he thinks Socrates failed. Along the way, we discuss what Socrates' attempt to save Glaucon can teach us about Andrea, or manliness, and what it means to seek the good in life. We enter our conversation discussing the way the Republic teaches us the need to possess not only physical courage, but the courage to think for oneself and stand up for one's beliefs, courage that is tested in a time like our own, where it can feel difficult to ask hard questions and wrestle with thorny issues. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is republic. All right, Jacob Howland, welcome to the show.
1: Oh, it's great to be here, Brett. It's an honor and a pleasure to be talking with you today.
0: Well, thanks for having me. we're at, We're actually at your office at the University of Tulsa. This is not very often. I get to do uh, interviews live with the guests. Usually it's remote. so this is going to be a lot of fun. So you are a professor and you've made an expertise you you've become an expert on Plato. and you spent a lot of your career writing and thinking about Plato. How did that happen? Did you read the Republic in college and like you were just hooked since then? Yeah. Well, you know, when I was
1: a freshman, uh, actually, first I thought I was going to be a physics major and that kind of didn't pan out. And then I thought I was going to be an English major. And in my sophomore, in my spring of my freshman year, I wandered into a philosophy course by a guy uh, taught by a guy named David Lochterman. And Lochterman was the most brilliant man, still is, that I've ever known. And he had an incredible passion for philosophy, and it was an intro to philosophy course. And, you know, you kind of get seduced by these really good teachers, and I thought, well, if this guy is this bright, and he thinks this subject is this important, I need to take more of it. And then in my junior year, I took a seminar in ancient philosophy with him, and uh, studying the Greeks is really exciting because the world was new and fresh to them. You know, They're the ones who came up with words like philosophy, love of wisdom, politics, athletics, agony, which is um, the word agon means competition, right? And that's what a, an athlete feels when he's contesting for victory. And so it's exciting to study the Greeks to begin with, but then we studied Plato. And I remember reading Plato's Symposium, which is a dialogue about beauty. And in the symposium, the character of Socrates talks about being taught the mysteries of beauty and ascending a ladder, sort of a divine ladder of ascent toward the beautiful with a capital B. And I I was entranced by the mystery of philosophy. I thought there was something deep there that I wanted to find out more about and some deep meaning that I was convinced Plato alone could reveal. So that's how I got started with Plato. That's, and so it's been like that. So how long has that been? Well, remember? that was a long time ago. You know, it's impolite to ask somebody my age about how long it's been. But that uh, that was in that, that seminar was in 1978. So that's already 40 years now. Yeah.
0: So, okay, let's talk about Plato. I know Mm -hmm. a lot of our listeners have read Plato's Republic. Either they did it in college in some sort of gen ed philosophy course they had to take, or they just did it for pleasure. But there's some people who don't know a lot about Plato. Talk about, there's a lot of Greek philosophers at this time, the Axial Age. Mm -hmm. What made Plato unique as a philosopher compared to like Xenophon or Mm -hmm. Aristotle Mm -hmm. and all these other guys?
1: Yeah, so Xenophon, who you just mentioned, was uh, one of... Two very important students of the philosopher Socrates, Plato being the other. And Plato's student was Aristotle. But it all started with Socrates, who was a very charismatic personality. And I'll be talking more about him later in this podcast. Plato is unique for a number of reasons. First of all, he wrote dialogues, what are usually called Platonic dialogues, 35 of them. And we have all 35 dialogues that were attributed to Plato in the ancient world. Plus a number that were attributed to him but are probably not by Plato. And these dialogues are an entire sort of fictional world of the sort that only really the greatest writers like Homer or Shakespeare might produce. And I mention Shakespeare because in terms of literary genre, the dialogues are closest To Greek drama. You know, you had these Athenian dramatists, Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides, who wrote tragedies and comedies and weird little dramas called satyr plays. So the Platonic dialogues are dramas in which we don't see the sorts of things we get in Greek drama where people are killed and, you know, there's fighting and uh, war and so forth. But what we see is people arguing, having philosophical discussions, and doing all the sorts of things that people do. In discussion, telling jokes, making little speeches, maybe getting angry, telling stories. And in these dramas, Socrates, Plato's teacher, is the protagonist. He appears in almost every single platonic dialogue, And this is really unique in philosophy, that what we have is a kind of story making not philosophy, but the philosopher, the center of attention. So we get to see Socrates as a whole human being. And we get to um, see him interacting in the historical circumstances of his age with other Athenians. And one feature of Socrates that I want to mention, I'll talk about this more later too, but he is a kind of new hero. He's a sort of new protagonist. You know that the Greek dramas and Homer, they might have somebody like Achilles or Heracles and these these men were great because they were courageous and they were victorious in battle and so forth. Socrates is a philosophical warrior of sorts and and what makes him heroic is his integrity. I think that he shows us Socrates because Socrates was a rare human being who lived up to his best understanding of things. He didn't just talk the talk, which would be philosophy, he walked the walk. So He spoke about justice and courage and virtue and making your soul as good as possible. And he lived that life. And that's what Plato wants to present to us. So very different from, say, a philosophical treatise like Aristotle or Kant, who uh, basically engages in the
0: analysis of phenomena, but doesn't give us a drama. Yeah, that's what I've – I love reading Plato. I'm drawn to Aristotelian virtue ethics, but reading Aristotle is a slog. Because, you know, those are basically his, like, lecture notes. And yeah. it's just like, if, then, then this, and blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, uh, but, like, Plato, it's like, wow, I could just you – can, you can just read this for pleasure because, like you said, it, it's like literature. It's like you're reading a novel, a drama. It's fantastic. That's right. And, you know, let's not uh, – let, let me put in a word for
1: Aristotle um, – I mean, Aristotle's account of virtue and happiness and his, his demonstration that these things are essentially coincident, that to be the best human being and live the best life and realize your human potential in the most excellent way possible, and that's what the Greek word virtue, arete, means, is coincident with happiness. That is the, the, the route to a deeply meaningful and flourishing life. But that comes out of Plato because Plato shows us that in the character of Socrates. Socrates is the man who values justice and goodness and virtue above all else and could even be said to have been happy even though he's executed by the athenians on the charge of impiety and corrupting the
0: young so aristotle grows out of plato plato makes aristotle possible so i think you mentioned this a bit but what was plato's big goal as a philosopher like what was he trying to accomplish well that's that's, a great, that's like a that's an entire course right there no
1: that's a that's a great question so i'm going to speak to What I see is sort of the center of the target with respect to what Plato's trying to do. And to do that, I want to give a little bit of historical background. Plato was born maybe around 428 BC. The Peloponnesian War, which had essentially been started by Pericles, who was practicing a kind of politics of imperialist expansion, had begun in 431. The war lasted 27 years. It's called the Peloponnesian War because the opponents of the Athenians – were lived in the southern region of Greek called the Peloponnesus, and their leader was the city of Sparta. And this was a long, protracted, bloody war that the Athenians finally, against all odds, managed to lose. They had the best military equipment. They had the best navy in the world. They had a, a, a tremendous amount of wealth but they bungled it and they lost. So, fast forward to 404 BC. The Spartans have the city of Athens surrounded. They are starved into submission and they capitulate. Immediately thereafter, the Spartans install a puppet government of Athenian aristocrats, really oligarchs, who then establish a regime that lasts only 8 or 9 months that was known as the regime of the 30 tyrants and this regime proceeds to execute 1,500 of their fellow Athenians. They purge the city. They are attacking their political opponents. A number of their political opponents, the Democratic exi- uh, uh, Party, goes into exile. They return. A huge civil war ensues. The Democrats regain power, and then they put Socrates on trial. They're trying to settle old scores and they want to connect Socrates with certain members of the 30 tyrants. And I'll talk about those connections a little bit down the line as well. So he's executed. He's tried for impiety and corrupting the young. He's executed. So here's Plato. Plato is Socrates friend. He is his student. Socrates is his mentor. I've often put myself in the position of Plato. What would I do if I saw my city collapse through foolish policies And engage in a long war, and it finally ends up with a bloody civil war and the death of my mentor. I probably would just go off and weep or something, but Plato wrote 35 dialogues. He responds by memorializing Socrates and, in effect, producing this curriculum, this this educational materials, these dialogues that are designed to try to save Athens and maybe to save the world from the sorts of mistakes the Athenians made. Now, what does that salvation involve? I'll just say two things. One is, Plato looks at the causes of the war, and the causes were really the sort of uncontrolled passions for power and greed and wealth that caused the Athenians to get into the trouble that they immersed themselves in. And uh, Thucydides, the historian, wrote a history of the Peloponnesian War. And in this history, he uses the word eros. Eros is a word that's the source of our word erotic. It it, it specifically refers to sexual passion, but it more generally refers to a very strong desire. And in Thucydides, there are about six places the word eros shows up, and it's always a dirty word because the Athenians, for example, had an eros for going to Sicily, the Sicilian expedition, and trying to conquer Sicily and and then conquer Carthage and, and perhaps attack the Persians and so forth. Plato realizes it's not passion, it's not strong desire that's the problem. It's the object of our desires. And he teaches that the object of human desire should be what he calls the good. The good, if you will, is Plato's version of God. It's the the transcendent source of meaning and goodness in the world. And coordinate with that, he believes that the soul that approaches the good through philosophy will 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 be the most integrated wholesome whole human soul human being. So he wants to he wants to present us with an idea of what it means to be a person of integrity and to be that kind of person as exemplified by Socrates. We have to come into the presence of the highest transcendent reality. He wants to remind human beings that the world is a big place and that there's something above man. And to relate to that transcendent reality is to be fulfilled and be virtuous and live a good human life.
0: Long answer. Well, yeah, that's a big goal. It's yeah. a hefty goal. <laughs> it's a huge goal. <laughs> All right. So he's written a lot of dialogue, but his seminal work is The Republic, where he really grapples with this issue. For those who aren't familiar with The Republic, or maybe just for a refresher, like what's the general outline? Mm-hmm. Well, the Republic is set during the Peloponnesian War, and basically it tells
1: a story. Socrates goes down to the seaport of Athens called the Piraeus with Plato's brother Glaucon. Really unusual thing about the Republic is that Plato had two brothers, an older brother named Glaucon and his oldest brother named Adamantus, and they play a very big role in this dialogue. They go down. It's a, re, it's a religious festival. Socrates and Glaucon go down following this religious procession, and they're getting ready to go back to Athens, and they run into Adamantus a guy named Polemarchus, a bunch of other younger men who say, stick around the Piraeus. As part of this festival, we're going to have um, a sort of an all-night party. There'll be a torch race on horseback. There'll be drinking and so forth. Well, Socrates being Socrates gets them involved in a discussion instead. And instead, they spend all night talking about the best life and whether the best life is a life of tyranny, right, tyrannical power, so you can get anything you want, Kill anyone you want, become wealthy, right? No limits on your desires, or is it the life of philosophy and justice? And Plato has a couple of. Um, well, we can talk about some of the thought experiments. Do you want me to say a bit about that?
0: Yeah, let's go into because yeah. there's a lot of like popular thought experiments that people right. might even know about, sure. but didn't know it comes from the
1: Republic. Sure. So I'll say a couple things about that. At one point. Glaucon, who is Socrates' main conversation partner or interlocutor in the Republic, says, look, I want to tell a little story. It's a thought experiment. And the thought experiment is designed to show that even people who are thought to be just or think they're just are really at bottom unjust. And here's the experiment. What if he had a ring that made you invisible? How would you behave? This is the story of Gyges' ring, the name for the guy who finds the ring. And he tells a little story about a shepherd, of nobody, barbarian shepherd in Lydia, who finds a ring that makes him invisible. And what does he do? Well, he sneaks into the palace. He murders the king. He seduces the queen. And he becomes the ruler of this barbarian kingdom. And he uses the ring opportunely to appear to be just while actually being unjust. So he kills his political opponents and so on. So this is a very interesting challenge because Glaucon says... Anybody, even those who we think are just or who think themselves just, if they had the ring, they would behave unjustly. And that proves that at bottom, we're all unjust. Another famous, it's not exactly a thought experiment, but it's an image in the Republic, is called the cave image. I think it's a very powerful image. and So Socrates says, here's an image of what it would mean to be educated. And he says, our initial condition is we're born into a cave. We don't know it, but we're prisoners chained up in a dark cave and we're shown images cast on the back wall of the cave, which are really shadows produced by puppets held in front of a fire way above and behind us. We don't even know it's there. So it's something like watching a movie, right? And the prisoners in the cave think that these shadows of artificial objects are what is real. And if you think about what they're watching, it's a story Socrates says they're man and animals and tools. And the cave is an image of culture. Every culture, if you like, is a cave and people are born into it and they're taught. These are the realities. And this is, for example, what it is to be manly. This is what it is to be successful. This is what, this is who our gods are. And philosophy is getting out of the cave into the sunlit uplands of truth and being where incidentally, one encounters the highest principle of reality, according to Socrates, the good, which Socrates presents in an image as the sun, the source of light and life. So, education is getting out of the particular cave of our culture and seeing things from the perspective of reality itself, the real world, and liberating ourselves from the prejudices and the short-sighted understanding of things in our culture, and in particular, the game that goes on in the cave, because every cultural cave, in every cultural cave, there's a there's a quest for power and a quest to try to be the person who manipulates the images. And the people who are involved in that are often unaware that there's anything outside of the cave.
0: So that's, a, that's a, th- those are two very interesting images. Well, they are. And those, I mean, they, they creep up in pop culture today. So like sure. Guy G's Ring, The Lord of the Rings, like, that's... Absolutely.
1: Tolkien picks up on this. In fact, we can go back to Richard Wagner, who wrote operas as part of what he called The Ring Cycle. It's the same idea. And then Tolkien picks up on this. The cave image, incidentally, we see that, for example, in The Matrix. So I was thinking. Yeah, so The Matrix, you know, I mean, uh, I, I tell my students, watch The Matrix, you only need to watch the first one. By the third one, I was rooting for the machines. But <laughs> you know, if you haven't seen The Matrix, it's uh, we live in a world of illusion. That's essentially the cave. And some people get out of that world of illusion and encounter reality. But there is one, one major difference I have to say about The Matrix. For Plato, and this, by the way, is why the Christians and in general, well, and also the Jews and the Muslims, they loved Plato. Because, again, he emphasized the good. And this notion of a transcendent source of being and life. And the fundamental idea there is that the, the, the created world is good. The world is good. And that happiness and, and, and fulfillment comes through contact with reality. In all of its concreteness and in all of its vibrant life. The Matrix, it's sort of a more modern view of reality or even postmodern. The only thing reality has to recommend it in that film is that it's real. It's not particularly good because once you get out of that illusion, you realize you're actually slaves. And, you know, they're, they're, the people who have gotten out of the matrix are on some spaceship. It probably smells horrible. The food isn't, it's a colorless environment. The food is some nasty gruel, but it's real. It's real. And, and, and that alone human beings want to have contact with reality that's a platonic principle that's what fulfills us
0: maybe the matrix like is a nietzschean version of platonism
1: I think that's right yeah the matrix is is a kind of stripped down view you know in that film there's no god there's no fundamental principle of nature and the goodness of nature but it's still real and and, and I think that the filmmakers and plato and philosophers in general Agree that the human mind and the human soul needs to be coordinated with reality. Nietzsche, by the way, who you know was sort of famously nihilistic and um, you know taught that God is dead and so forth. In the preface to Beyond Good and Evil, he he describes philosophers as "we whose task is wakefulness itself." So the idea of like waking up from a dream, a world of illusion, coming out of the cave—that's essential to philosophy. Even if
0: you're Nietzsche. So, but another uh, big part of the Republic is this, um, this thought experiment, a big one is creating these cities in speech. Mm-hmm. So, Socrates, with his interlocutors, decides to create these like imaginary cities. What, why mm-hmm. did he do that? What was he trying to do by creating these imaginary cities? Yeah. So, again, I mentioned that the,
1: the issue in the Republic is whether the life of justice, and virtue is preferable to the life of tyranny. And Socrates is asked at one point to prove that it's better to be just than unjust. And so he says, you know, the soul is a very hard thing to see. He sort of says it's a very small thing. In fact, it's invisible, right? So how do we get to know someone's soul or character? Well, you can't look directly. I can't look directly into you, Brad, and see what sort of person you are. But I can see what you do. I can see what you say. I can see how you behave. But Socrates says the city is the soul writ large. And if we look at a city, we, uh, which is you know an entire political community, we could get a better idea of what justice is and and so the city is an image of the soul. So but in fact Socrates then starts laying out these cities and each city teaches us something about a whole way of life. By the way the word republic in greek is politeia and that's that word means regime and for the for the greeks a regime was an entire way of life. So we get a sequence of cities the very first city is sort of designed to appeal to Glaucon and Socrates' other interlocutors and kind of test them and see whether they respond to this vision of what it would be to have a healthy community. The first city Socrates describes as true and healthy. And it's a group of very moderate human beings who have little technological development. They have a lot of leisure. They have a lot of leisure because they don't need to work too hard. They don't have very expansive needs. And their life is spent basically in community with one another and enjoying simple pleasures and simple food. Well, Glaucon looks at the city and he says, they don't have any luxuries. They don't have painting. They don't have philosophy. This is fit for pigs. So Socrates says, oh, I see. You want a city where we've got, all we let our desires grow and we can fill ourselves with luxuries. That city turns into what he calls the feverish city. Then Socrates very wisely says, this city is sick, okay? That first city was true and healthy, but let's let's purge this city. Then he introduces another one that looks a lot like Sparta, a much more sort of Spartan city, right? A moderation, kind of enforced moderation, manliness, a regimen of physical exercise and spiritual toughening. And that looks pretty good, and Glaucon's interested in that. But then his friend Polemarchus says, wait a second, Socrates mentioned something about women and children. And they're young men, so they want to know more about that. And so then... Socrates says, well, okay, I'll tell you about that. And the city then turns into what will become at the end of its development, the city of philosopher kings in the Republic. That's called the Callipolis. I think it's a somewhat ironic name. It means the noble and beautiful city. And each one of these cities is a sort of way of seeing whether, whether Glaucon can be attuned to the way of life that Socrates describes. And finally, that last city, the city of philosopher kings, is one that Glaucon finds extremely attractive, and I think it's 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 got a kind of pedagogical function because Socrates wants to, to see whether he can get Glaucon interested in philosophy, and so the description of the cities is a way of getting issues of justice on the table, and a way of attracting Glaucon to to what Socrates has to say to him. So I need to talk a little bit about Glaucon as well. But yeah. We can so let's get it. So
0: why did Plato pick his brother? to be this main interlocutor with Socrates and like what did he represent and mm-hmm. like why wasn't mm-hmm. in the Republic, why wasn't Glaucon initially interested in philosophy and and, and he found these other things interesting? Yeah. So, it's, so we know about Glaucon who was a historical
1: character, of course, one of Plato's brothers. Initially, the earliest report of who Glaucon was comes from Xenophon. Xenophon was, again, another student of Socrates. And in Xenophon's memorabilia, his recollections of Socrates, he tells a little story. And the story is this. Glaucon, before he was even 20 years old, before he was even a citizen of the Athenians, would go to the assembly and get up on the platform and harangue the Athenians. He was so ambitious for power. And his relatives would pull him off of the platform because he was making a fool of himself. And they couldn't get him under control. And so Xenophon says, for the sake of Plato, who, by the way, at that time was probably like 12 or 13. I mean, he was just a boy. For the sake of Plato, whom Socrates already knew, he went to talk to Glaucon. And what he said to Glaucon is, well, you want to be a powerful man among the Athenians. Yes, I do. Well, you know, that's wonderful. What do you know about economics? What do you know about military matters? And he shows him that he, he doesn't really know anything. So that's our first introduction to Glaucon. And Glaucon is particularly interested in impressing his relatives. He has two relatives in particular. One is named Critias and one is named Carmides. These are names of notorious Athenians because they were two men who were the leaders of the 30 tyrants, the oligarchy that took over Athens at the end of the Peloponnesian War and executed all these fellow Athenian citizens. So Socrates is interested in Glaucon because he wants to save Glaucon from the fate of pursuing power and glory and pursuing tyranny. Again, in the Republic, Glaucon is the spokesman for tyranny. He's the guy who says people underneath are unjust. He's attracted to power and rule. And it's clear that Socrates has a close relationship with Glaucon. He's with him at the beginning of the dialogue and he speaks directly to him repeatedly in the myth of Ur at the end of the dialogue. So, there's a special issue there. Socrates wants to save Glaucon's soul from a life of politics and injustice and turn him toward philosophy.
0: And, but also, uh, Glaucon, as you allude in the book, mm-hmm. it sort of represents an ideal of manliness mm-hmm. that was mm-hmm. prominent in ancient greek at the time so where you were to be a man to have is it andrea is Mm -hmm. the greek andrea andrea uh you needed to have ambition for power seek Mm -hmm. glory seek Mm -hmm. honor Mm -hmm. so tell us more about ancient greek manliness and how glaucon embodied that right so ever since
1: the time of homer i guess you could say that all young greek males wanted to be achilles achilles is the most famous greek warrior and cannot be defeated in battle. I mean, of course, he does ultimately die because he's shot by an arrow in his heel. That's a whole other story. Not one, by the way, that's told in Homer. And the so, the paradigm for manliness was heroic manliness, deeds of valor and glory on the battlefield. The word Andrea means courage. And what's interesting is that well, let me say a little bit more about, about that ideal. I think it's it's reasonable to think of the Greeks as part of a sort of Mediterranean culture of manliness. I, I would actually refer to the Sicilians here, if anyone knows the story of the Godfather. okay, In the beginning of the Republic... Polemarchus, who is one of Socrates' interlocutors, says justice is harming enemies and helping friends. And the harming enemies part, Socrates argues against. Think about what it would mean to be a godfather, this sort of Mediterranean and Sicilian idea of manliness, which is very much like the Greek idea. You don't let people hurt you. You hurt them. Revenge is a big, big thing, okay? And so this is the sort of standard heroic ideal of manliness, what's interesting about Socrates is that he represents a very different ideal. Socrates is himself, and we know this is historically true, he was a distinguished warrior. Socrates was a poor man, but somehow he acquired the money to buy the shield and greaves and spear and sword that would allow him to be a hoplite warrior. Hoplite warriors were sort of the main warriors in ancient Greece. And he distinguished himself on the field of battle. There's a dialogue called the Carmedes in which Socrates returns from a very bloody battle in which he saved Alcibiades, another famous Greek warrior, and then turned down. We know this from the symposium. He turned down the awards. He said Alcibiades should get the awards. So young men like Glaucon and Alcibiades and others were attracted to Socrates in the first instance, because he was a famous warrior He actually spent years on campaign. There's a wonderful article called Socrates as Hoplite published in the journal ancient philosophy that details this. But I think that, so he had those ingredients, but Socrates idea of manliness was very different from the classical Greek ideal because the fact is that Greek manliness, which is the word for courage was actually rooted in cowardice. This is sort of the dirty little secret. If we look at Homer, Hector, the great Trojan warrior, is facing Achilles outside the war of uh, outside the walls of Troy. His mother and father, the king and queen of Troy, have said, Come inside the wall, Achilles will kill you. And Hector doesn't do it because he doesn't want to be called a coward. Aristotle says in the Nicomachean Ethics that the citizen soldiers in, Greeks, in Greece were motivated by the fear of shame. This is, for example, a major principle in Sparta. Sparta was extremely hard on those who in any way were thought to be cowards. So the fear of disrepute is what drove ancient Greek courage. Here comes Socrates. Socrates has a different idea of manliness. His idea is the courage to do what is right and just, no matter what people think of you. And this comes to a head in the case of the trial of Socrates. He's tried for impiety and corrupting the young. It is said by his accusers that his philosophizing harms his fellow Athenians. And he says, no, I am all about going around the city of Athens and telling you to care for your souls, to be the best human beings possible. I will not stop philosophizing. And he's tried and executed on a capital crime. What kind of courage does it take to stick to your convictions in that way and not to be afraid of disrepute, not to be afraid of being executed because you're doing something that, to the best of your knowledge, is just and right. That's a new idea of heroism. We don't see that in the ancient Greek
0: heroes like Achilles. We're gonna take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day, wear a custom made to measure suit. Suits started at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. And what I think was interesting too, you talk about in the book is that this ancient idea of Greek manliness, while it, it could spur individuals to strive for greatness, erite, but in the end, all that striving... Uh, Came to log like it would. It would eventually destroy the city, the city state. And like that's kind that's of right. what, that's sort of the point of the the Iliad, right? That's Achilles, right. Achilles' you know quest for glory, you know, and yes. he felt he was being disrespected. Like he withheld his fighting ability, yes. and the the Greeks got slaughtered. Um, and so Homer was like, like, don't do that. That that's a that's a It's an example of what happens when you let glory and honor become your main main purpose in life.
1: That's exactly right. I think the Iliad really is a, is a fantastic. Story and has this really critical edge. I mean, some might read the Iliad and say, Look, it's celebrating these heroic warriors. But the deeper, darker side is, What does the longing for glory and the fear of disrepute do to you? So, Achilles, uh, you know, the Iliad begins with a quarrel between Achilles and Agamemnon, who's the chief general of the Greek forces. Achilles feels disrespected. And because his pride is wounded, he withdraws from battle. And the real tragedy of that is not only are the Greeks basically being slaughtered because they've lost their greatest warrior, Achilles' best friend, Patroclus, goes into battle and is killed. And Achilles loses his friend because of his own withdrawal from battle and because he's not there to protect him. And once that happens, he realizes you know what? All this glory stuff, it's nothing. Compared to the my love of the man who died, my my best friend. And then Achilles goes and he, you know, he slaughters Hector. And it's not even a quest for glory anymore. It's pure revenge. I'm gonna kill the man who took the life of my friend. He learns too late what's valuable in life. And Plato wants to teach us what's valuable. Virtue, friendship, which is extremely important. Aristotle teaches that friendship is a virtue and involves virtue. It's an arena for showing that you're a good human being, helping your friends and harming your enemies and getting revenge is not part of the philosophical life
0: but this is a but the way socrates does it it's very Mm -hmm. subtle Mm because he could have done just been like you know bludgeoned them with ham-fisted like you just need to be a good guy right but he doesn't do that yes right so how does socrates make philosophy appear manly like to glaucon because that's what he's trying to do right yeah i mean (laughs) this is right so um
1: The way I read the Republic is that he is trying to bring Glaucon permanently into his orbit. He wants Glaucon to become a student of philosophy and to spend his life philosophizing. And in the Republic, by the way, Socrates says that philosophy is a lifelong quest. Philosophy, as he says famously in the Apology, is is the examined life. And Socrates says the unexamined life is not worth living for a human being. But so... We, we, we know that Glaucon has spent time with Socrates, but he, Socrates feels he's not really permanently attached to him. And really the tragedy of the Republic in a way is that Glaucon is caught between Socrates, whom he admires and respects as a warrior, as a man of intellect. And Glaucon is schooled in mathematics. He's poetically gifted. He's an educated guy on the one hand, and the pull of his relatives, Critias and Carmides, whom I said earlier— we see as early as the story Xenophon tells about him before he's 20, he wants to impress. He's very drawn toward the political life that's represented by Plato's relatives, Critias and Charmides. So, Socrates wants to pull him away from those seductions, which are really a sort of life in the cave, and bring him into philosophy. How does he do that? Well, he presents this city called Callipolis in which The greatest warriors are going to achieve the greatest honor. He describes an army training of warriors, both male and female, who will protect the city, who will maintain civic order. And then the best of those warriors, who are also the best in study and in learning, and Glaucon is, again, very bright and intelligent, will be promoted to the level of philosopher kings, and I should say, we know that Glaucon is manly because early in the Republic, Socrates quotes a, a poem made by Glaucon's unnamed lover, who, weirdly enough, some have attributed to that the poem to Critias, right? <laughs> uh, uh, saying that Glaucon was a very bold and courageous warrior. So, I think he tries to. Lay out this city of philosopher kings as a way of hooking Glaucon. Here's a regime you could imagine yourself in. And if you're great in battle, you'll get all these honors and power and so forth. And if you're even, if you're the best of the best, you could become a philosopher king. And then, so the idea would then be that if Glaucon gets interested in this regime, which he is very interested, he might hang around with Socrates and pursue philosophy. I think that's the gamble that Socrates is taking. So, yeah, he, he tries to hook him with this idea of what could be in store for a guy like Claucon.
0: So, he's using the, the, that passion mm-hmm. for glory and honor, mm-hmm. sort of nudging him in a different direction towards something more positive.
1: Right, right.
0: Yeah. And, and in addition to that, you also talk about how Socrates makes all these references to the Greek epics, mm-hmm. like the Iliad and the, and the Odyssey, where... Sort of subtly saying, like you know, showing, like looking to these guys and saying, you can do that, but also be like a philosopher, yes, like Odysseus or like Iliad right. or like Achilles. Have the have the have the courage of Achilles, but you know, towards philosophy.
1: Right, exactly. So um, this latest book is called Glaucon's Fate: History, Myth, and Character in Plato's Republic. But my first book, which Brett has already read, you already read, yeah, it's good, uh, is called uh, The Republic: The Odyssey of Philosophy and That book read Plato's Republic as a kind of philosophical odyssey. And in fact, in in other dialogues as well, philosophy is presented as a kind of odyssey and quest. So what's what's the odyssey? Well, you know, Odysseus leaves home, has all these adventures, finally returns home. And in the Republic, uh, it's it's presented as a kind of journey. I mean, Socrates and Glaucon at one point, you know, they're, they're said to be sort of at sea and they have to jump into the sea and swim. And so... And one can find specific parallels that I won't go into to Homer's Odyssey, but the idea is that it's an intellectual Odyssey and a spiritual Odyssey, right? You could also think of coming out of the cave as as a kind of Odyssey of the soul. So there's clearly something about manliness or courage that is reflected in the use of a character like Odysseus. By the way, in the Apology, Socrates compares himself to Achilles. He compares himself to Heracles, whom we know as Hercules, who went around the world killing monsters and sort of saving civilization. And then the question becomes, well, you know, what exactly is the role of courage in philosophy? And again, I think manliness, Andrea, courage plays a central role because at the end of the day, I think what Plato wanted to show us in Socrates is what it means to be a person of integrity, we might say a self, an active, reflective, responsible individual, not to be swept up in the passions of your community, like Athens and the Peloponnesian War, not to be swept up in whatever values your particular cave of culture might be promoting, but to be your own person, to be reflective, to be deliberate, to understand what is right and good, and to do it. And by the way, Socrates was famously a man of integrity. Kierkegaard, the 19th century Christian philosopher who loved Socrates and modeled himself, he thought of himself as a Christian Socrates, actually suggests in his journals and notebooks that Socrates is the only person outside of Christianity who is without sin. And what he means by that is he says he walks the walk and he talks the talk. There's no gap between his knowledge of what is right and good and his action. And that is, that requires manliness. That requires courage because to be a good person at all times is difficult because we are surrounded, you know, by many mediocre individuals and some bad ones. And the just man in unjust times will not be lauded and not be approved. And so you've got to have the courage of your convictions, but your convictions also have to be right and good. (laughs) And that's what philosophy is about, is understanding how to live And then the deep secret is, that's the source of happiness. That's what makes a human life deeply fulfilling and meaningful, is having the courage to be the best individual you can be, regardless of whether people look at you as eccentric or weird or
0: strange, or they're hostile to you as they were to Socrates. Okay, so... Let's, let's kind of recap here what we've talked about so far and then get into whether Socrates was successful with Glaucon. So Glaucon had this idea of Greek manliness where it meant to be, you sought glory, power, and you wanted to be in the public arena. That's where that's, and you showed courage that way on the battlefield, et cetera. Socrates was coming along and saying, well, no, that can lead to disaster both for the individual and for the city-state. So he came up with this new like Socratic manhood where you had Andrea or courage, but for the philosophical life. That's right. So then Socrates creates this perfect city that was sort of drawing on, uh, you know, appealing to Glaucon's love of glory mm-hmm. and power, but then nudging him slightly towards the philosophical life. Did it work? Did, did, did that city-state that, city state that uh, Socrates created did it help Glaucon go over to the, the world of philosophy? Well,
1: that's a good question. I need to say something more about this city because I have a, a, a somewhat individual take on on, on this city called Calypolis, the noble and beautiful city. So let me say this. The logician and philosopher-scientist, the British thinker Karl Popper, wrote a book during the Second World War called The Open Society and Its Enemies, and it was an attack on totalitarianism. And in this book, Popper argues that the regime of philosopher kings in Plato's Republic is a totalitarian regime. That's the one called Calipolis, And I have to say, I agree with Karl Popper. So let me tell you, first of all, this is a very strange thing because Socrates presents it. He expresses admiration for this
0: regime, which... Yeah, you read it and it sounds terrible. You have no privacy. Right. Like, That's right. You don't, you don't have your own family. Like uh, You don't even know if your kids are your kids. That's right. It's terrible.
1: Right. So there, there are a lot of interesting levels here, but l- let me say a little bit about the origin of this. As I said, Glaucon tells this myth of Gyge's ring, the ring of invisibility, and... There is a deep problem here. I I, I believe that this myth actually is a response to something that his relative, his older cousin, Critias, who was the leader of the 30 Tyrants, wrote in a play. It's It's called the Sisyphus Fragment. And in this little story about Sisyphus, Critias tells the following story that looks a lot like the story Glaucon tells before he tells his ring myth. And that is this. People were lawless and unjust until laws were made. But then people figured out that you could commit injustice in secret. And Critias says, and by the way, Critias was a radical thinker, that's when human beings invented the gods and said that the gods know everything we do, even secret injustice. Okay. And the Sisyphus myth ends with Critias saying, and that's how human beings put an end to injustice because they got people to believe in these all seeing gods. And by the way, Zeus in Homer, for example, is said to wander the cities and observe the unjust deeds of human beings. Well, if Glaucon is right about the ring myth, um, what needs to be said here, by the way, is that the guy who discovers the ring, an ancestor of a fellow named Gyges, isn't afraid of the gods. He doesn't believe in them. And he goes under the ground and he steals a ring from a corpse, which is a very impious thing to do. Grave robbery was a very serious thing. Sin, if you will. So, what, what that story is, is pointing to is that those people who be, don't actually believe in an all knowing God will continue to be unjust and commit injustice in secret. The only way to stop that kind of injustice is, therefore, to design a city in which everyone is spied on at all times. And that is what happens in the city of philosopher kings called Callipolis. Anyone can go into anyone's room at any time. All the poetry is censored. Poets produce state-mandated content. There's no privacy. And so on one level, what this city is, is a regime that is designed to root out injustice everywhere. And it does so by essentially engaging in a kind of totalitarian monitoring of all the citizens. It's a very ugly regime. That's not my only criticism of the regime. So then we have this question, what's going on? with this story now on the one hand i've suggested that it's designed to attract glaucon because it's a city in which glaucon feels he could be at home he could be a big shot he would be a big warrior and he could even be a philosopher king it's also a city and here's where things get really complicated that looks a lot like the regime of the 30 tyrants that was established by by glaucon's relative critias and so You know, there's a lot to untangle here. Why would Socrates present this city? Well, on one level, he's trying to attract Glaucon to a life of philosophy because it's a regime in which Glaucon believes he could be a philosopher king. But on another level, and the Republic has many levels, it is a demonstration of what would be needed if you absolutely wanted to root out injustice everywhere and what would be needed is an unjust regime <laughs> that's the problem and Karl popper is right actually that one can see in that city of the republic a kind of prototype of later totalitarian regimes and in fact later totalitarian regimes have modeled themselves on that regime in the Republic, the Khmer Rouge and the regime of revolutionary Iran set up by the Ayatollah Khomeini. Believe it or not, Khomeini had studied Plato's Republic. If you look at the structure of that regime, there's a council of guardians. He, you know, and he regards himself as a kind of philosopher king, a sort of religious philosopher king. So the history of the Republic, the effect of the Republic on human history has not been great. But I actually regard all of this as a kind of misreading of what's happening. But it raises big questions, which is, what responsibility did Socrates have for Glaucon's fate? Did he tell this story because he was he knew that Glaucon was already familiar with that kind of regime, having spent time with his relative Critias? On the other hand, did Critias get his ideas for the sort of tyrannical regime he sets up from this Callipolis in the Republic? These are big questions.
0: Yeah. And I, I thought it was interesting, too, you make this really great point that... In Callipolis, there's the the guardian. Like, so you're you're sort of sorted out. You know, like you were either bronze, silver, gold, right? And then depending on where you were, you'll get put into like the school for guardians, Mm -hmm, right? right? And you'll you're going to be trained in philosophy, but a state sort of mandated philosophy. And then if you're good enough, then you'll be you know moved over to the philosopher king Mm -hmm. and be trained for that. And it looks like Socrates is like, hey, this is a way where you can sort of do philosophy, but like. It isn't philosophy, right? Because like you're just you're told the answers and you just sort of spit out the answers over and over. And so it's not really philosophy. Yeah, that's right.
1: You know, it's absolutely fascinating because in the Republic, when Socrates introduces the philosopher, it's quite remarkable because Socrates says at one point, you know, the the ills of human life will not be solved, and the ills of, of communities. War and discord and so forth will not be overcome unless philosophers rule. And Glaucon says, hey, what are you talking about? Many people will be angry with you when you say that. And Socrates says, well, maybe you don't know what a philosopher is. And then he lays out what a philosopher is. And in this part of the dialogue, I think we hear Socrates' genuine voice. And he sa- he doesn't talk about the mind or the intellect. He says the philosopher is somebody who is supremely erotic, super passionate, But not about glory, not about honor, not about sex, not about material rewards, about wisdom. The philosopher loves wisdom, and his desire is to come into the presence of the truth. Uh, By the way, this is, you know, this Platonic idea very attractive to religious thinkers because what is happiness from a religious perspective? Being in the presence of God, right? You know, the exile from Eden is is a curse because you're no longer in the presence of God. So, in any case, what happens as he then lays out the regime is that erotic philosopher kind of disappears and is replaced by a dogmatic philosopher. Um, and essentially, the state has sort of one version of philosophy and there's a long training in metaphysics and in analytical thinking and so forth. And there's no debate. We don't have... Socratic dialogue if you sort of ask would Socrates be happy in this regime if Socrates lived in this regime He would be asking questions as he always does he would be questioning the philosopher kings They would not take kindly to it because they are part of a school of philosophy So there's a kind of calcified uh, Version of philosophy in in the Calypolis. and what's interesting is In book seven of the republic Socrates lays out the whole curriculum for the philosopher kings the word eros never shows up it's not erotic. It's 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 compared to gymnastic, which means exercise, in Greek. It's a grind.
0: It's very strange. You know, it made me think when I was reading that that part in the Republic, and then also in your book. It made me think of like just sort of like how uh, school is for a lot of peop- young mm-hmm. people today, right? right? You don't go because of the love of learning. You just go with these hoops I got to jump through right. in order to get the degree so I can get the nice job that will pay for whatever. Like, that, that idea that Socrates is putting out there for the education of a philosopher king like, it reminded me of that for some reason.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I think you're pointing to a very serious problem because I guess I would say that what we see in the Republic, what, what substitutes for philosophy is something more like ideology. That is to say, if we go back and look at the, the totalitarian character of the regime, one of the reasons that they're spying on everyone is they don't want challenges to their authority. And it's a very kind of abstract thinking. Socrates, so to, to sort of go back to why Plato wrote dialogues, they're very concrete. Every discussion in a platonic dialogue starts out in an ordinary human context and returns to that context. There's a dollar called the lockies, for example, where the issue is courage. And the, the question of what courage is comes up because a couple of men are asking Socrates how to, whether their sons should study a certain technique of fighting in armor. And that quickly leads into the discussion of what is courage. The the, philosoph- the philosophical regime in the Republic is characterized by a very abstract thought. It's not connected with the concrete character of everyday life. And I think our education today is is often sort of imposed from above in very abstract categories. It doesn't appeal to the concrete desires of existing human beings and doesn't really nurture their longing to explore and discover. doesn't stimulate their passion. So there is a sense in which the kinds of mistakes that we see being played out in the Republic of sort of abstract thinking and a kind of one size fits all implementation from above state mandated content and so forth. Are being repeated
0: today. I don't know if that's very clear, but I, no, it's my sense. That's yeah. what I think, and so this this goes to the, the to show like how like how the Republic is still relevant today. Yeah, like I mean, we are still grappling with this idea of what does it mean to be a man. Yes. Um, and is it does it mean to sort of that Homeric manliness where it's like bravery right. on the battlefield and and having a love of honor and glory, or is it something different? And if it is something different, how do you nudge men in that 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 way without uh, you know? being condescending yes. and making it so unattractive like i don't want to not like so like you know like the whole new man thing of the 1960s and 70s ponytail guy <laughs> right. You know, right that didn't work and we're still grappling with that issue no i today. that's right you know and i I think a lot of categories
1: are confused here, as you know, Brett. There's a lot of discussion of toxic masculinity, and and obviously there are there are forms of masculinity. I would say that uh, Greek heroic traditional masculinity is toxic in the sense that it involves a competition for glory and power, and uh, that's very destructive of of human communities and and of individuals. But I don't want to get lost in in all this discussion of toxic masculinity the models of good masculinity. And I think Socrates is trying to model that. And, you know, masculinity is I mean, I'm probably preaching to the choir here, but this is not a bad thing, because courage is not a bad thing. And and standing up for what is right and taking taking account, as Socrates says in the Apology, by the way, he imagines someone saying to him, Aren't you ashamed of doing something that could result in your being executed? And Socrates says, not at all. The only thing you should care about is being the best human being you can. You should care about justice. You could care, should care about your soul being in the best condition possible. There are a lot of forces in contemporary society that pull us in other directions, that distract us, that seduce us with promises of pleasure and entertainment and wealth and power and turn us away from the question of being the best people we can be. And frankly, it takes courage to pursue that goal often in society and to turn away from, from these seductions. I think C.S. Lewis said that every virtue at the breaking point turns into courage, right? Right. Because you have to take a stand. And, you know, one of the things that I think that Socrates stood for is, is cultivating the individual as an individual, you know, Socratic education, Socrates believed that we don't Really know anything that we haven't worked out for ourselves. Education is not pouring water from an empty cup, from a full cup into an empty cup. We need to be active participants in our own learning. And one of the great things that comes out of that is discovering who we are. Self-knowledge was a big element of, major element of Socratic philosophizing. So discovering who you are as an individual and what it is that makes your life fulfilling and rich and not wavering from that, right? Not being swept away in social currents or fashion. And there is a kind of manliness that is required to pursue that kind of path. So I don't think we're doing a particularly good job of, of educating young men to manliness or even defending manliness, good manliness today, because we, because we don't educate people Socratically, you know, I, I think sort of the individual attention and the excitement of learning are things we need to recover because that's the root to virtue, opening the mind to the world, opening the mind to reality and showing young people the joys of learning and
0: letting them become confident about their beliefs and their opinions well, so I mean, the like, how do how do we do that? So obviously, you know, Calipolis didn't work, where you sort of come up with this like curriculum, um, where you like, here's what you need to learn. Yeah. Like, how do you inculcate that love, that desire to just learn and be playful? I mean, that's another thing about yeah. Socrates. Socrates is very playful, playful. right? Uh, we know. I feel like we've lost that playfulness in yeah. education, and I don't. I mean, from reading the the Republic, I don't know if it's possible to sort of mandate that from above, <laughs> right?
1: No, I don't think you can. Um, you know, anyone who who has, has observed little children sees their their playfulness and their curiosity. I happen to have a three and a half year old granddaughter and and she's just incredibly curious and and playful. So what happens? Kids go to school and it somehow gets knocked out of them. And I think part of this is, a reflection of, of the kinds of tendencies we see in, for example, Calypolis. there's centralization, right? We have these big school districts and the, and, 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 and the school districts mandate certain kinds of teaching and, 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 and mandate certain kinds of um, evaluation and testing and so forth. And, and, and somehow um, this playfulness and this curiosity is lost. The only way to really I, – I think Socrates is right about this. His education was one-on-one. When Socrates was talking to somebody, they were the center of the world for him. He paid attention. He looked them in the eye and he asked them questions and he put them on the spot. And another thing here, by the way, and I think this is also relevant to the question of courage and manliness. He asked tough questions. He didn't cut people breaks. It wasn't particularly pleasant to talk to Socrates because what he did is he showed you that you probably didn't know what you were talking about. And that's the first thing you need to do if you're going to learn something is realize that you're ignorant. Socrates was sort of you know, the school of tough love in education. A lot of educational philosophy today is trying to find the strengths of students and not challenge them, right? So if someone is let's say they learn better by listening than by reading. Then we should provide them with opportunities where they get most of their content through listening. I think Socrates would say, "Well, if you have difficulty learning through reading, then we should make you read more." You see, so somehow to combine those challenges with a sense of fun, Socrates is very funny, actually. Uh, so we we have to recover that. But the key here is it's one person at a time. You know, I've been teaching at the University of Tulsa for 31 years, and every day that teaching and learning occurs in my class is a good day. And it occurs one student at a time, right? I mean, I'll have a class with a bunch of students, but it's individual students I'm teaching. And they're the ones that come up to me and say, that's interesting what you said. I want to learn more about that. One
0: little victory at a time. I was As you were talking, do you think it's harder to ask questions and be playful with ideas in today's world, or is it actually easier compared to Socrates time? I think it's actually harder to ask questions because
1: we've been talking about shame and fear of public opinion. I said that, uh, Greek heroism was rooted in that, in that fear, especially even more than in the love of glory. Right. Um, and today, uh, you know, there are certain subjects that, um, Professors have to be fairly intrepid to even raise in class um, certain issues you know, having to do with sexuality or religion or minority groups and so forth. Um, and a lot of professors really shy away from those sorts of issues. One way to approach them, by the way, and this is why I think studying the ancients, for example, is a wonderful thing, is through reading books like The Republic. I mean, the one thing about The Republic is it's very interesting on the question of males and females and, and um, you know uh, – roles of women and men in society and so forth. And you can approach these issues if you're talking about another text, not necessarily directly addressing questions in contemporary culture. Because frankly, there's a lot of pressure. I think students have complained about this as well as professors. What if I voice an opinion that people might take the wrong way? What if I say something that might offend somebody? And in fact, at our university, there is an anonymous online bias reporting system, (laughs) which, you know, to report bias. So you can imagine that students and professors alike are pretty cautious about asking questions and, and raising topics. And the fact is that we need to be able to talk about everything. I mean, philosophy shouldn't shy away from anything. That's the way that we're educated. And this is not a question of taking political sides. If you have a certain kind of belief, the best way to strengthen your understanding is to expose it to contrary opinions and come up with arguments against other positions. So the the sort of public pressure – and by the way, that's multiplied by things like Facebook and Twitter and so forth because it's very easy for a large group of people who have the same kind of opinion to gang up and attack. So it actually takes a certain amount of courage to be – a socratic thinker in today's world you know socrates was never afraid of saying what he thought in fact he thought it, he was obliged to say what he thought very few people are completely open about their views in a public context today
0: yeah um so i mean that that bias hotline it sounds like callipolis right no privacy mm-hmm. just kidding <laughs> it's get, a problem
1: it's yeah. a problem and um i think that um i think that uh, people need to learn to be tough you know um Plato loves to compare the body and the soul. How do you get get a healthy body? Well, one thing is exercise. What is exercise? It is putting your body in a position where you are overcoming resistance. What does a healthy soul look like? A healthy mind. Putting yourself in a position where you're overcoming resistance. That means there has to be resistance. That means there have to be ideas that are anathema to you when you first look at them. Right? Only then do you develop the kinds of intellectual virtues and strengths that can allow you to have a better understanding of your views, a better understanding of other views. And, you know, I think, I mean, the promotion of honesty and public discourse is absolutely crucial, but it requires people who are prepared to engage in that kind of often rough and tumble debate. And I don't think we do our students a service by shielding them and coddling them and making sure that we don't step on their toes. Because they're not going to learn those kinds of skills. And they're not going to develop the confidence in their individual selves as active, reflective centers of thought and action. And that's what it means to be a fully flourishing human being from the Socratic perspective.
0: You need Andrea. It all goes back to goes back to manliness, goes back to courage. So, what do you think happens to Glaucon? Do you think? (laughs) I mean, I know that maybe this is sort of killing the, you know, but like, what do you do? You think Socrates was successful? He realized, ah, man, this little gamble I took in making this thing that appealed Mm -hmm. to Glaucon, um, it actually backfired, and he's like, (laughs) right. So, first of all, in
1: Socrates' defense, let me say this: Uh, I think this was a gamble, dangling a city like Calipolis before him, and however. Had Socrates not intervened with Glaucon, there's no question that he would have joined the regime of the 30 tyrants and uh, participated in, in that tyrannical oligarchy and engaged in many unjust deeds as a result. Why is there no question? Well, Plato leaves a letter called the Seventh Letter. And in the Seventh Letter, he explains his own experience. Now, Plato was the youngest brother. Adamantus was the oldest. Glaucon was the middle brother. Glaucon, we know, had already established himself as a brave warrior and a very bright young man by the time of 404. Plato would have been about 24 years old. Glaucon may be closer to 30. Plato writes in the seventh letter, I was invited by my relatives. They took over in Athens at the end of the war. And they um, promised to restore the city to virtue and justice. And... um, And he indicates that basically he was on board and he began to participate. And he said, but I quickly realized that the previous regime was a thing of gold compared to these guys. And he talks about how they they persecuted Socrates. They actually made a law, right? They didn't like Socrates because he asked questions. And and naturally, Socrates was anti-tyrannical. And so they made a law. Socrates can't talk to anyone under the age of 30. And you can't teach the art of speech and so forth. Glaucon would certainly have been invited to to join this regime. Adamantus would have been invited to join the regime. We know that Adamantus didn't. There are various clues in the Republic, but one major clue is he is present at the trial of Socrates as somebody who can vouch for Socrates. Had he been a member of the oligarchy, the regime of the 30 tyrants, he would not have been present at a trial under the newly restored democracy When Socrates is being tried, in part because of his connections with Critias and Charmides, by the way, because these are Plato's relatives, these are people that Socrates talks to in the dialogues. Glaucon does not show up in the Apology. He disappears from the historical record. And I always assumed when I wrote my first book on the Republic that at the end of the dialogue, I took Glaucon at face value. He says to Socrates, I'm convinced the life of philosophy is better than the life of tyranny. And I believe he was convinced at that time, but things change. And I was reading a book years ago. I never thought about it. I thought he's, he's convinced. A number of years ago, I picked up a wonderful book by a historian named Mark Munn called The School of History, Athens and the Age of Socrates. And Munn pointed out a couple of things just in passing that really got me thinking. He said, I think Glaucon joined the 30. And I think he died in the decisive battle in which Critias and Carmides were killed by the returning Democrats. And this battle took place in the Piraeus. He says, Glaucon doesn't show up in the Apology. He disappears. More interestingly, the battle took place on the very road at pretty much the exact place where Glaucon and Socrates are stopped, going back up to Athens at the beginning of the Republic. That's the location of the battle. And there were a couple of other things that he mentioned. I started thinking about it. And I realized that there are lots of clues in the Republic. There's all this kind of deep tragic, dramatic undertones associated with Glaucons. And and, and so, um, and I won't go through all the clues, I won't say anything else about that right now, but I make the case in this book that Munn is probably right, that the suggestion is that Glaucon did join the regime of the Thirty. And did die fighting for them, most likely. And that means Socrates failed. And that means, and this is where it really gets interesting, that Socrates, the age's most competent and capable spokesman for virtue and philosophy, couldn't save Plato's beloved brother. It's a tragedy. Why is that? Why couldn't he save him? And one of the things that points out is how very difficult it is to overcome the socially inculcated values, this idea of Greek manliness and glory and power and ambition that Glaucon absorbed as it were with his mother's milk. How do you overcome those forces and set somebody on the path to virtue and wisdom? Socrates couldn't do it with Glaucon. He did it with Plato. He did it with Xenophon. And those are two major, major accomplishments. But as the case in many other Platonic dialogues, he fails. He fails with the people he talks to.
0: Yeah, so it's risky. Dialogue dialogue is risky. Socratic. It is very risky. Philosophy is risky.
1: Philosophy is very risky. It's it's. Uh, but according to Socrates, you know, the examined life is is the life too to goodness and virtue and happiness. And it's a risk we have to take. By the way, in the cave image, the prisoners, when they're secretary says, if somebody unchained one of these prisoners and turned them around and brought them up, the first thing they realize as they go up out of the cave is all these things I thought were real are just shadows projected on the wall by the, the guardians of this culture, these, these puppeteers. So the first step in philosophy is calling into question the things that you have unreflectively been taught, the things that you assumed were true. The first step in philosophy is negative, and that's dangerous because if you stop there, you can end up being a nihilist, right? You can say, what have I learned? And by the way, I think that's a big problem today. We're in an age of deconstruction and postmodernism. As the word deconstruction suggests, we're taking apart the views and the traditions that we've been taught. We're very good at that, but what do we replace it with? And someone can easily develop the cynical view that each culture, each society, maybe even in each individual has their own views. There's no truth. There's no outside of the cave, if you will. So that negative moment is very dangerous. Glaucon stopped too early. He should have continued with Socrates. And I'm convinced that if he had finally come into the presence of the good more closely, come into the presence of the goodness at the heart of creation at the heart of the world that he would have he would have had the fulfillment that socrates describes in the republic socrates describes that happiness at the end of the philosophical quest i'm convinced that socrates had it and
0: it would have been Glaucons salvation but my guess is he didn't save him didn't work well jacob this has been a great conversation is there some place people can go to learn more about the book and your work sure well i mean you can you can i i actually have a uh a
1: website. I think it's called jacobhowland.com. <laughs> I, I, I say I think it's called because I, I don't really look at it a lot. But you can look at my, gluck, uh, my, my book, uh, Glaucon's Fate, History, Myth and Character in Plato's Republic on Amazon. Um, there, There is a review coming out in the Claremont Review of Books, and there should be a review in City Journal online in a, in a, in a month or two. So, but check it out on Amazon. There are a couple reviews. You can uh, you can look at it there. And and um, I hope that interested uh, listeners will will buy the book and uh,
0: find out more about this uh, sort of historical mystery. Right. Well, Jacob Howland, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you so much, Brett. I really appreciate your talking with me.
0: My guest today was Jacob Howland. He is the author of the book Glaucon's Fate. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Make sure to check out our show notes at aom.is slash republic, where you find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the A1 Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find all the podcast archives. We've got almost 500 episodes there coming up on 500. Also, we have thousands of articles that we've written over the years about personal finance, social skills, physical fitness, you name it, we've got it. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we'd get something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you to not only Listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action.